0: I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. It's 2024, baby, and we are inching slowly toward hell. And by hell, I mean the 2024 election. It's 13 days from the first Democratic primary in New Hampshire, and the mood among Democrats, at least, is grim. Joe Biden, the current president of the United States, is polling behind Donald Trump in almost every national poll. And in my view, The reason for that is obvious. know the average tax rate they pay? Eight, E-I-G-H percent. We cheer for Muslim athletes like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Let's go lick lick the world. Let's get it done. And Joan Shingang, Shanga Kawa. And a simultaneous interpreter 68 times, 68 hours. 68 times, more than 68 hours. Regardless of what you think of Biden's policies, it's pretty simple. At times, it seems that Biden can barely string a sentence together. Can a person like that really beat Donald Trump? I don't think so. And neither does nearly every smart person that I know. The feeling among Democrats, including many highly connected Democrats right now, is that 2024, at best, is going to be a squeaker if Democrats are lucky and there's really nothing anyone can do about it. But there is one man, one brave lone soldier, who believes that we, or rather he, can do something about it. And that is Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips.
1: I am today announcing my candidacy for the presidency of the United States of America.
0: Dean is a moderate Democrat from Minnesota. He has political experience, but not the baggage of a long career in D.C. He's incredibly bipartisan. He's a philanthropist. He's a husband. He's a father. He is also an ice cream and vodka magnate, which are two of my most favorite things. And he is also, importantly, not 81 years old. He is the good, solid, respectable age of 54. And last, Phillips is also treating Democrats to something that used to be normal in American politics try to keep it uh, uh, right around the 90-second mark so I don't have to
1: cut anybody off. You should be honest, we flipped a penny. I've never seen that before, actually. (laughs) A
0: (laughs) proper primary debate. Use a penny. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, Look, I I started this, first of all, thank you. The courage of you all showing up and being participants is beautiful, remarkable, and I love you all. Like the one one he conducted
0: a few days ago in New Hampshire with Marianne Williamson. In short, Dean Phillips is the archetype of the presidential candidate everyone claims to want. He also offers an alternative for the American voter who feels alienated by both the left and the right. As my colleague Peter Savodnik reported for the Free Press this week, in an incredible piece I recommend you read called The Great Scramble, nearly half of Americans today identify as independents, not necessarily as Peter writes because they're centrists or moderates, but because neither party reflects their views. One character from the piece is this incredibly colorful lesbian trucker, She voted for Trump in 2016 and then Biden in 2020. Now, she's not sure who she's going to vote for. As she told Peter, quote, Our society has made it to where we're supposed to fit into a certain mold. It's like taking a plus-size girl and trying to squeeze me into a size two. Just not going to work. Dean Phillips believes that he can be the candidate for these kinds of voters. Why? Simple, because look at what he's doing right now. He's saying the quiet part out loud and, in doing so, bucking the Democratic Party establishment, despite the consequences. As Tim Alberta put it in The Atlantic, Dean is, quote, making a permanent enemy of the party establishment and throwing away a promising career in Congress. Or, as James Carville said, Dean is bound to be treated like a heretic in Democratic circles. These are no small accusations. A heretic? An enemy of the Democratic Party establishment? You'd think we would have all heard of this person, and yet I'd venture to guess that most of you have not heard yet of Dean Phillips. As of this interview, he's polling at 3.4%. Objectively, Dean's run is the longest of long shots, if not simply impossible. But he believes there's a path. We talk about that and how the Democratic Party has gotten to this pass. It's a wide-ranging conversation that touches on the border crisis, public education and school choice, policing, healthcare, and foreign policy. We also touch on how his Jewish identity fits into his politics, especially since October 7th, and his difficult relationship with Rashida Tlaib. Dean isn't running for re-election in the House, and he told me he's completely uninterested in 2028. This is it for him. So, can he pull it off? Stay with us. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How's your social battery right now? Full? Drained? Maybe at half-life? It's easy to spread ourselves too thin, especially with spring right around the corner— What's the right amount of socializing for you? How do you recharge? Do you thrive around lots of people, or do you think you need more alone time? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that works for you and that doesn't leave you drained. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Go to betterhelp.com slash honestly today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, dot com slash honestly. I don't know about you, but I'm always searching. Searching for new restaurants in my neighborhood, searching for better clothes, searching for better clogs. Okay, that last one might just be me. But I search everywhere on Google, Instagram, Twitter, Resi, you name it. But when you're hiring for your business, the best way to search is not to search at all. Don't search, match. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. Ditch the busy work and the endless scrolling and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. A recent survey showed that 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Indeed's matching engine constantly learns from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com Honestly. Just go to Indeed.com Honestly right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com Honestly. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Dean Phillips, welcome to Honestly.
1: Great to be with you, Barry.
0: I'm so glad you're here. Me too. I'm talking to you in LA, I think it's January 4th, 2024, we're less than three weeks out from the first primary in New Hampshire, and Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both polling at around 44, 45%. Some polls put Trump slightly ahead, but the point is it is extremely close between these two frontrunners, And no one I know, Democrat or Republican, is happy with these options. And that includes a lot of diehard progressives and liberals I know who look at Biden at age 81 and think this man is simply too old to be president. And I wanted to start by just asking you how we got here. What is so broken about the Democratic Party that Joe Biden at 81 is again the front runner for this party? How do we get here?
1: The answer to the question you just asked is very simple. Everything in the United States is based on a market that's how we have free enterprise that's how that's what capitalism is except in politics we have a duopoly and the duopoly does not serve the market essentially the democratic party and the republican party are private institutions controlled by a handful of people that make decisions for the entire country ostensibly in a democratic fashion but actually it's anti-democratic and there's no better evidence of that than the fact that about 80% of the country wants neither of the two most likely candidates which is why I'm running for president. We have to break the duopoly. We have to create competition because that's what Americans demand, but Americans have to participate in primaries. So you ask why? Two things, two participants in a duopoly that are preventing competition and Americans don't vote in primaries. So you can't hand the keys over to the far 10% on the far left and the 10% of the far right and expect us to have candidates of competency, decency, integrity, and in this case, even some degree of youth, because we've handed the keys over. So it's not going to be an act of God or an act of Congress or an executive order. It's going to be people getting out and voting in primaries. And if you care, get out and vote in primaries and choose a different candidate. Don't complain come next November if it's Donald Trump and Joe Biden, if you didn't vote in the primary.
0: I think most of us... Agree with the first thing you've just said, that there is a duopoly, that the party machine exerts incredible control over who becomes the candidate. But from my perspective, if you're just trying to be cynical and strategic, you would look at an 81-year-old in Joe Biden and say, this guy could lose. This guy could lose. He's going to to lose. Exactly. So wouldn't it be just purely from a strategic perspective smart to get behind you or someone like you? Why hasn't that happened, and how are you going to change it?
1: So your contention is that is exactly mine, Barry, that as a Democrat, we should want to win. Politics is about winning, and then it is about working together to get stuff done. I do not see a Democratic Party right now that seems to want to win. If we wanted to win, we would not be coronating a candidate— who is losing in just about every national poll, who is losing in every single one of the seven battleground states, who is facing the lowest approval numbers in American history, who is clearly in the dusk of life and clearly has lost the affection and support of a majority of Americans. And for a party to coronate someone like that rather than have a thoughtful, invitational competition isn't just a dereliction of duty, it is damn right dangerous.
0: Right. If you're a Democrat that contends that Trump is an existential threat to democracy, isn't it incumbent upon you to find and support and throw your weight behind a person that can beat him?
1: It sounds so simple and trite, but yes, that's what this whole thing is about. And how can we identify that person if we put on blinders, we encapsulate the president, and we discourage, any, not, not just discourage, by the way, the vitriol, the attacks, the disenfranchisement, that is being put upon me, directed towards me, is staggering. This is not just not supporting competition, this is literally actively trying to suppress it. I'll give you three examples. The state of North Carolina and the state of Florida, the Democratic Party in each state decided there would only be one candidate on the ballot and therefore we will not have a presidential primary. Essentially, disenfranchising- On on what grounds? None, none. In fact, I'll give you another example. North Carolina 2020, 15 Democrats on the ballot, The only qualifier to be on the North Carolina ballot in their law is to be recognized in the national media as a candidate for president. And Marianne Williamson was on the ballot in 2020, along with 14 other Democrats. This year, the North Carolina Democratic Party only offered the name of Joe Biden to be on the ballot to the secretary of state. Not not just sort of, comprehensively disenfranchising every single Democratic and independent voter in North Carolina. The state of Florida, same thing, only offered one name on the ballot. So I don't know how a Democratic Party could be supportive of democracy while actively suppressing voters, candidates, and, I think even the worst, is debate. They proactively announced that there would not be a debate during the Democratic primary, no matter who's in it. So there is a disconnect. They're angry at me because I'm basically saying the quiet part out loud. I'm exposing the truth. I'm shining light on the corruption. And I'm astounded I'm doing it because I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a common sense, pragmatic, former House Democratic leader, three-term member of Congress who is shocked by how this really works, Barry. It is really corrupt and really dangerous.
0: So I know your politics are different from him, but was Bernie Sanders right when he was complaining in 2016?
1: Yes. In fact, I thought he was a sore loser. I wrote it off and then... I became a candidate for president. And let me tell you, Barry, what he said is absolutely true. It is not based on what voters want. It is based on what a handful of individuals want who do the coronation and then present it to all of us in the general election.
0: Let's take a step back for a minute for people who are compelled by what they're hearing from you, but are like, who is this guy, Mm -hmm. Dean Phillips? (laughs) Let's give people a little bit of a sense of who you are and where you come from. And and maybe we start in 1969 and and what happened that year?
1: Let me first reference the fact that, yeah, people don't know me. And the beautiful part about America is that this is a land of people who were unknown yesterday who only in this country, perhaps, can become known tomorrow. And in politics, it's really easy to become famous quickly if you just wanna be a jerk. Look at all the people whose names everyone listening knows who ascended to fame because they were total jerks. Or, You serve your entire career in Washington, as Joe Biden has done. Those are the ways to become famous in politics. And I'm not well-known. I want to acknowledge it. And my life started differently than most people know. Uh, My father, Artie Peffer, grew up very poor in Minnesota, St. Paul. A Jewish boy, couldn't afford college because his dad died when he was a little boy, my grandfather. And he wanted to be an attorney. So he earned an ROTC scholarship to the University of Minnesota, graduated cum laude in 1967, and was sent to Vietnam in 1968 and was killed in July of 69 when I was six months old. I actually went back to Vietnam for the first time in my life this year in March, wow. went to the very site where he died, where he took his last breath and was, uh, it was powerful, you can imagine. So that very much illuminated my whole early life. I was six months old, my mom was 24, widowed. So we had to live with my great grandparents for the first three years of my life. And then I got lucky and that's where my story really begins. I was adopted, uh, my mom remarried a wonderful man Eddie Phillips, he brought me into an extraordinary family and that good fortune is exactly who I am. I had a great grandfather, Jay Phillips, uh, who said to me regularly, Barry, that money is like manure. (laughs) If you stack it up, it stinks, but if you spread it out, it fertilizes. And that was the family ethos in our businesses and our philanthropy, and it illuminates my work in Congress now. I don't think there is a single Gold Star son or daughter from Vietnam whose life turned out as well as mine, just because of a simple twist of fate. And I don't think there's a single son or daughter of someone who lost a mom or dad in Iraq or Afghanistan that got as lucky as I did. And I just don't think that it should require good luck or the right zip code to have a chance in America. And that's how I was raised. Graduated from Brown University, entered the business world in a startup company, a bicycle apparel business. Then joined our family business, Distilled Spirits. Uh, We introduced Belvedere Vodka back in 1994. Became a great success. By the way, we took on two big brands, Absolute and Stolichnaya, a duopoly. When we sold that business, we entered Ice Cream, took on Ben & Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs with Talenti. I like disrupting duopolies. And then I'm watching the 2016 election with my family. And I was shocked, but was the toughest for me as I woke up the next morning to the sound of my 16-year-old daughter, Pia, crying in her bedroom. And I walked down the hall, I sat at the foot of her bed. She was in tears. She had just overcome Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, and she's a gay woman, and I didn't know that at the time when she was 16. And I saw something in her eyes that day, Barry, that to this moment is is something I'll never forget, and it left a real mark on me. And I sat at the breakfast table that morning, my other daughter on FaceTime from college, and I promised them I would do something, because I raised them to be participants, not observers, I recognized the fear that I saw in their eyes was probably pervasive in this country and a lot of kids' eyes every single day. And I had to do something. So I decided I'd run for Congress.
0: So you run in 2018 and you flip a seat that had been Republican for 60 years. Mm -hmm. How'd you do that?
1: Easily, invitation versus confrontation. The political industrial complex begs for mean-spiritedness, anger, angertainment I call it, which is dividing this country and confrontation. And coming from the business world, the private sector, the nonprofit world, I've never succeeded in my entire life through confrontation. I've only succeeded through cooperation. And that's what we did. We extended invitations to Republicans, to Libertarians, to Independents, to Democrats. And I bought a 1960 International Harvester Metro van called the Government Repair Truck. And I just drove that thing around my district. I put out chairs. I served coffee and lemonade. And people would come up and talk. And we had fun. We brought fun back to campaigning. And we flipped a seat that had been Republican for 60 years, beat a guy who'd won by 14 points. And I get to Washington in 2019, Barry, and think we're gonna sit down. Nancy Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, push us together, tell our life stories, do a ropes course and build some trust, <laughs> you know, something to, you know, kind of meld this new group together. And my gosh.
0: Just some butt ice breakfast.
1: Just Just, yeah, just the opposite. They put us on different buses going to different events And systemic separation in Congress started on day one. And I see the root of the problem.
0: You were in your third term in the House when Biden announced that he was seeking re-election. And that's when you first came on my radar because you were the guy in Congress that was saying the thing that everyone was saying in the privacy of their own homes, but you were saying it out loud. And it was a very basic thing, which was how the hell could it be Biden again? And you decided to kind of go on this recruiting campaign to convince another Democrat to challenge him. Help me understand why you did this and what the reaction was inside of your own party.
1: So I'm going to take you back to January 6, 2021, because that's when this real story and mission began. Uh, I was trapped in the House chamber with about 20 of my colleagues in the, the mezzanine level, the gallery. And most people on the floor had escaped. We were trapped. And I was sitting with colleagues in tears who were calling and texting home to say goodbye, because we really thought at that moment that they were coming with guns and they were coming for we Democrats. And we had nothing to defend ourselves with other than pens and pencils. And those were the worst 15 minutes of my life. Uh, Anybody who watched on TV, I'm sure it was among your worst 15 minutes or more than that as well. And what really jarred me though, was when we finally escaped, we were brought to a safe room And I was in a small room with about 25 people, including Liz Cheney, who at that time was the third ranking member of the House Republican Conference and not somebody who I knew well. And hours later, when Trump finally got on TV and tried to end the insurrection, I was with her when she pointed at the television screen and exclaimed loudly, he's responsible and we're gonna hold him accountable. And at that moment, Barry, every Democrat and Republican in that room, it was the only moment I felt like this in Congress, We all clapped, and I can guarantee you, we all felt like just Americans, that we were on the same team. It was a beautiful, memorable, indelible experience. And over the course of the next year, Liz Cheney went from that moment to losing her job on House leadership in the Republican Conference, to being essentially excommunicated for having the audacity to uphold her oath to the Constitution. And what I saw during that year was every one of my Republican friends would say the same thing to me privately. They were appalled by Donald Trump. They found him dangerous, incompetent, repulsive. And then they'd get on TV at night on Fox or whatever it might be and simply lie. Say they loved him, say he's the only one that can get the job done. His policies are wonderful. And I was, I was grossed out. And I thought that was a unique disease to the right. Now you get to the Biden episode. He had implied that he would serve one term. Most in Congress felt it would be one term. When it looked like he was going to run, People were shocked on my side of the aisle. We've seen the decline. By the way, I don't think he is incompetent. His communication skills have seriously declined. His physical uh, abilities clearly in decline. He's a human being. He's 81 years old. He's gonna be 82 at the next election. He'd be 86. I mean, I don't need to state the obvious, but people were shocked when he declared his candidacy because we've seen it and we knew. And my democratic colleagues started doing the same thing, saying one thing privately and then get in front of the cameras and lie. And I was appalled and I started calling attention to it. And I finally said it was time for the president to hand the torch to inspire the new generation to take the stage. He clearly didn't do that. Then I actually made phone calls. I made phone calls to Governor Whitmer, to Governor Pritzker. I thought a Midwestern governor, uh, one of those two in particular, would be outstanding candidates and that we needed to have a competition. They wouldn't take my call. And it became clear very quickly that there was a coronation in process. and. I took my message to my colleagues. I was a member of house democratic leadership. And it finally, I came to the conclusion that in the absence of courage, that I could not continue to congregate with people who did not share the conviction that was so clear to me. And perhaps it's because I did not aspire to a career in politics. It's perhaps because I was willing to torpedo my career in Congress that I was able to do what I did, which is finally decide if not now, when, and if not me, who. And my intention to this very moment is to still inspire a competition. I do think I'd make a good president, especially at this time, but more important than that, the mission is to change a system that is defeating the very democracy that ostensibly we are supposed to be upholding. And the fact that my fellow Democrats have been so silent in the face of truth is really appalling to me. The people who are the most important protectors of the foundations of this entire country are advocating their responsibilities in the favor of their self-preservation and self-protection and their aspirations, which is why there's not a single well-known Democratic candidate other than Joe Biden on the stage right now. Because if it was not about them and it was about the country, most assuredly they would be on the stage with me. I'm not well-known. And I did this at great personal cost, financially, emotionally, uh, to my family. This is not an easy thing to do, to go against your party when your party should be working with you
0: Some of the obvious choices to challenge Biden would have been my home state, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, Mm -hmm. could have been Gretchen Whitmer, could have been Gavin Newsom, could have been Joe Manchin. I'm still constantly in conversations where people are convinced that Joe Manchin's about to get into the race, just like they're convinced that Glenn Youngkin is about to get into the race. And I think the obvious question that normal people are asking themselves is, why haven't they? In other words, could there be like what are they waiting for? They have an unbelievably weak frontrunner who is probably maybe going to lose the election to Donald Trump. In my view, the field is wide open other than you. Why aren't they these specific people getting into the race?
1: Because we have a system designed to penalize, to attack, to hurt, to demean, to diminish uh, and oppress anybody who might have the audacity to practice democracy. And having gone through the first two months of this campaign uh, and been subject to the, that, that strategy, I do understand why people are hesitant to do the unthinkable. And by the way, why is it unthinkable in a democracy to offer one's name in a primary competition? That's why we have them. And by the way, I'm running in a primary. I'm not running as an independent. The only people helping Donald Trump get reelected right now, Barry, are Jill Stein, Cornell West, and Joe Biden. That's the truth. What about RFK? RFK, I wanna see, look, I believe in data. The data right now indicates that he's probably drawing a little bit more from Trump. I wish he was staying in the democratic race. I wish anybody, I wish Manchin, I wish Whitmer, I wish Shapiro, I wish- Are they cowards? I believe in my experience that until I sit with someone and understand who they are and what motivates them, I think it's wrong to, and we do this all the time, we define who people are without even meeting them. It's sickening, it's repulsive, it's a big part of our problem. I'm not gonna call them cowards, but I'm gonna say I'm disappointed in them, disappointed in people who A, could have saved this nonsense, uh, eliminated the blinders, and most importantly, beat Donald Trump probably easily, to refuse to offer them their names. Yeah, I'm terribly disappointed because I think that is um, dangerous. Uh, But I'm not going to call them cowards until I have the chance to visit with them.
0: You've said on more than one occasion that Biden is not incompetent, but he's on the decline. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Do you think Joe Biden has dementia?
1: No, I don't think he has dementia. I think that's unfair. I do think there's been a serious and quite obvious decline in his ability to communicate. But the issue here is not about him. It's America's perception of him. And America has made up their mind. And it's not about demeaning him. It is about just simply acknowledging the truth. And a political party should have the responsibility to identify candidates who can win.
0: Do you think there's a possibility somebody else is going to get into the race?
1: I sure hope so. And I think that will only happen, though, if the president passes the torch. I think it's time for him to acknowledge. And I think after New Hampshire, we might see kind of the Gene McCarthy effect. You know, maybe it's not a coincidence that I'm another Minnesotan who's not that well-known who entered the New Hampshire primary and probably will surprise the country on January 23rd.
0: Okay, so spell it out for us. Tell us what that strategy looks like because as far as I can see, your strategy essentially – well, you tell me. I think today you're polling at –
1: Low single digits. Right, low single
0: digits, right? Today you're polling at 3.4% down from a high of 7.5%. Biden's polling at 70.1%. There's just no way to close that gap. The Without, only scenario- without
1: being known. Well, That's the whole point. Okay, no one e- knows me. Either you no. have
0: an insane breakout moment uh-huh. or two, uh-huh. Biden drops out. Right. It really seems like the latter is the key here. So play out for me how you think this could work for you.
1: My strategy is quite simple. I am not well-known. Joe Biden has been in Washington 50 years. Of course, he's well-known. He's the president of the United States. My numbers are very low, I think more because people just have not been introduced to me yet than that they are disappointed in me. In fact, the best blessing of not being known is that two thirds of the country doesn't hate me yet. <laughs> you know, no one, look at those cross tabs. People don't know me. New Hampshire, you know, look at as someone who has not received a single invitation to be on MSNBC since I declared my candidacy. You're kidding me. No, not one. And by the way, I'm the, I'm the ranking member of the Middle East Subcommittee on Foreign Affairs. I've been with Benjamin Netanyahu twice to Riyadh this year, to Turkey, to, I've been working on the peace process, not received a single invitation, despite the tragedy that's going on in the Middle East, because at the end of the day, Barry, just as Fox is the bullhorn for the GOP, MSNBC, same thing with Democrats, and the media relies on access to information and people, and they do not want to risk hurting that flow because that's how you make billions of dollars. So you've
0: been completely shut out from MSNBC? Not
1: received a single invitation. How about CNN? CNN's been okay, News Nation has been wonderful a lot of media organizations, but we have a real tragic circumstance right now where they're not doing their jobs. But anyway, to your question, strategy. My intention is to demonstrate my viability, A, and frankly, I think voters will demonstrate the lack of viability of Joe Biden. And I think the right thing to do will be to exit the stage the same way that Lyndon Johnson did in 1968. And that cleared the path for Bobby Kennedy, If Kennedy had not been assassinated, I think he would have been our president, and I think America would be in a much better place right now.
0: Who do you think, other than you, is the Democrat who's not yet in the race, who would have the best chance in the country to beat Donald Trump?
1: I really thought a Gretchen Whitmer and uh, Raphael Warnock ticket would be unbeatable, unbeatable. And I'm really disappointed that we have this culture. By the way, the Democratic Party's culture is tenure, not talent. Hmm. It's waiting it out. We have committee chairs who have been in their seats way too long. We protect that. Republicans have six-year term limits, creates natural turnover, that's healthy, that's how most organizations operate. You know, what a disservice to the country, to, to constituents, uh, and that's how our party's operating right now. It's the idea of wait in line, climb the ladder, stay in politics as long as you possibly can till it's your turn, instead of identifying the people who can win and the most competent. And I'm becoming concerned That if we don't reform this party soon, we're in big trouble.
0: The first primary is going to be in New Hampshire on January 23rd. And you have said, do I have to win that primary? No, absolutely not. Do I think I'm going to? No, I don't. But I do think people are going to surprise. And that's what matters. What do you mean when you say that? What is
1: surprise? So right now, I'm two months into this. Most in the country don't know me. And I'm polling in the low single digits. No surprise. So if I do better than that, double digits? Yeah, that would be nice. The president should be winning probably 85% of the vote. An incumbent president in the first primary in the country should easily win 85% of the vote, right? If you're electable. So, two stories here. Will I do better than the single digits that I'm polling at? I think the answer is absolutely yes.
0: You're spending a lot of time in New Hampshire. Yeah, I'm,
1: spend, I'm doing it the old-fashioned way. I'm out in the streets, in cafes, in at parks, at festivals, you know, the Laconia Pumpkin Festival. I'm in North Conway, New Hampshire, meeting with, you know, with, at retirement homes. So I think I'm going to do better than people expect. If I get 25 percent of the vote, that's a pretty strong message that people are restless. And if Biden only gets 50 percent.
0: Do you think that's possible?
1: Yes, I think it's absolutely possible. But the good news is this. It's not about me. It's not about Biden. It's going to be about New Hampshire voters, voters finally being the first in the country to opine on the realities here. And I think they're going to demonstrate that Joe Biden is not electable.
0: Let's stick on for a minute what it would look like for Biden to drop out and why he hasn't done it yet. What I have sort of continued to hear is that Jill Biden is really the force encouraging him to stay in. Any truth to that?
1: I've heard those same things, I, I, but I don't really buy innuendo anymore because I've seen how I've been subject to it and so many falsehoods. And I don't know the truth, but I can only surmise this. The president in 2020 was probably the only Democrat who could have beaten Donald Trump. And he did, barely, barely. He won by 44,000 votes in a few states. So using a Reagan-esque term, do you think Joe Biden is better off now than he was four years ago? Of course not, 40 some thousand votes. What I believe happened is this. I think he was planning to serve one term, even if you know that's your plan, you don't publicize that because then you're a lame duck. So it didn't surprise me that he didn't say it overtly. But I'm imagining he was presented polling data some months ago, before April, before he declared his candidacy, that showed that Vice President Harris could not win a national election, that Governor Newsom could not win a national election, that everybody on that stage in 2020 would not win a national election against Donald Trump, and that even though the polls weren't good for Biden, that he was best positioned to do so. I can only imagine he was presented that data and told by his handlers that you are the only one. We need you to do this again. And as someone who does believe I think in this country and as a man of integrity, he probably thought to himself, I wasn't planning on it, but if I'm the best position to do it, I've got to do it again. I think that's what happened. But I also don't believe he's being told the truth by those same people now. I don't think he is really aware of his standing in this country. I don't think he's aware of how tragic this will be both for his own legacy and for the country. Because I think if he was, he would make a different decision. And the only reason I really do question anything about his competency right now is on this single subject because it is so irrational, so counterintuitive and so dangerous that I cannot quite reconcile it with the man I know.
0: Biden has a war chest of $90 million, something like that. You're lending yourself 2 million for your campaign. Correct me if the, that number yeah, it's, is wrong. No, it's, it's,
1: it's already been doubled that so uh, far.
0: Okay, so you're lending yourself $4 million for your campaign and you've attracted some former Biden donors. Mm-hmm. How are you gonna raise more money?
1: This is really expensive. If I didn't have personal resources to invest in this, I could never have done it because I've spent already $2 million just to access ballots. Think about that. The second highest cost is my personal security. Think about what that says about democracy right now. And donors, they're subject to the party. So raising money right now is hard. I have to earn it. And I intend to in New Hampshire, uh, we've raised uh, over a million dollars from I think 7,000 donors so far which is wonderful, but I don't spend a lot of time fundraising. We have not done much digital fundraising. Plus, I don't have the Democratic Party apparatus behind me. Uh, So I really do turn this over to Americans. If you care about change, if you want to turn the page, if you are deeply concerned about the status quo and Joe Biden losing to Donald Trump, my goodness, I would be so grateful for your support because I cannot continue this if Americans don't step up to help
0: finance it. Most of us have very little idea about what you mean when you say getting on the ballot. Yeah. And learning about this vis-a-vis you and also Marion Williamson and RFK has been illuminating to me of how mm-hmm. insane and bureaucratic and state by state that actually, can you just explain to people what you mean when you, yeah. like? because I think most people are like, ah, this guy sounds interesting, I might vote for him. Then they go into their voting place on whatever day their primary is taking place and you might not even be on the ballot. Mm-hmm. How is that possible in a democracy? How does that work?
1: So look, I'm a sitting member of Congress. I'm 54 years old. I've got broad life experience in the private sector, nonprofit sector, and of course, public sector. And even I'm just discovering this for the first time. I assumed, like probably most people listening, that we have a transparent, accessible system in America that supports democracy. And when I went to New Hampshire on October 27th, I brought a thousand dollar check, I had to sign my name, attest to the fact that I was born in the United States and that I'm 35 years old. And I'm joined by 20 other candidates on the New Hampshire Democratic ballot. I assume that's how every state operated. California, secretary of state, identifies presidential candidates in the news, puts them on the ballot. New York, one of the most anti-democratic states in the entire United States of America. How does it work in New York? Disenfranchise. They force voters to have to register way before elections. If you miss the window, you're out of luck. It is about a half a million dollar task to get on the ballot in New York. You have to get, I think it's 10,000 plus signatures. By the way, getting signatures is not some grassroots support effort. You pay firms to put people on street corners with clipboards to get signatures. It's a racket, it's corrupt. Plain and simple, it's corruption. State of Florida, it's very clear They just put Joe Biden on the ballot and disenfranchised voters to even have a choice. North Carolina, despite their bylaws saying, all you have to do is be a recognized candidate in the national or North Carolina media to be on the ballot. Marianne Williamson was in 2020. She's not more recognized now than she was four years ago. Of course she is. She's not on the ballot either, and nor am I. So this is corruption. It is $2 million so far just to get on ballots. I'll be on about 40 states. It's a huge undertaking, and it should be easy.
0: Let's say you win double digits in New Hampshire in a few weeks, 10%, 20%. What's your move the day after that?
1: My move will be to invite Americans who maybe hadn't been paying attention, who had not gotten to know me, to give me a moment to make my case. Don't let Twitter define me. Don't let the Biden campaign define me. Don't let MSNBC define me. Come get to know me. I want to meet you. I want to make my case. I want to tell you my life story. I want to hear your ideas. But if I don't generate support after a a surprise showing in New Hampshire, then I gave everybody a chance. And that's kind of what this is about. It's the same thing I did in 2016. I wasn't gonna sit quiet while I saw a dangerous man go to the White House. I wanted to play my part in resisting him. He's coming back. I know what's at stake. I'm doing the same thing now. And if people read the polls, look at Biden's standing and get to know me, I do believe that whether it's me or somebody else, that we will save the country. And I wish we had more people uh, on this team right now, but I think on January 24th, it might just be our chance to send that message broadly. And then it's invitation to participate.
0: After the break, how October 7th has changed Dean Phillips and his friendships, including with Rashida Talib. Stay with us. I don't know about you, but I'm always searching. Searching for new restaurants in my neighborhood, searching for better jeans, searching for better hypoallergenic detergents. Okay, that last one might just be me. But I search everywhere, on Google, Instagram, Twitter, Resi, all of it. But when you're hiring for your business, as I have learned, the best way to search is to not search at all. Don't search, match. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform. Ditch the busy work and the endless scrolling, and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. A recent survey showed that 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Indeed's matching engine constantly learns from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash honestly. Just go to indeed.com slash honestly right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash honestly. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Dean, let's talk about some policies and things that are going on in the news. Let's start with economics. One of your campaign slogans is, make America affordable again. And I think a lot of Americans will, would say life was more affordable. It was more affordable under Donald Trump than it is now. Are Republicans just better at managing the economy? And what do you say to people who look you in the eye and, and agree that Donald Trump, terrible, buffoon, dangerous for the country, but things were less expensive?
1: No, I don't think Republicans are better at managing the economy. In fact, data indicates Democratic administrations generally uh, do better for American economies. What I do think some Republicans are doing better than Democrats right now is just listening. I I tell you, Barry, Washington has a way of sucking new members of Congress into this culture that encapsulates you, that separates you, that forces you to focus on fundraising, 10,000 hours per week members of Congress spend fundraising, not listening to people, other than wealthy and well-connected people. And by the way, I'm the only member of Congress who takes no PAC money of any kind, no lobbyist money. I don't take member money, I don't give it to other members, and I don't have a leadership PAC, which is just a slush fund for politicians. I'm the only one out of 535 members that do those four things because I'm so disgusted with the fact that the system forces you to spend all your time with the wealthy and well-connected. Doesn't make you a bad person, but it eliminates the opportunity to listen to people who are struggling. And all you hear, the only people you congregate with, the organizations, the lobbyists, the state dinners, the country clubs, are people who have an agenda to continue to accrue more wealth to the wealthy. So what I'm hearing is people can't afford their lives. Healthcare, housing, education, and food and fuel. It's true. 60% of Americans right now live paycheck to paycheck, 40%, almost half of the country doesn't have $400 in the bank for an emergency. We will not survive. If we do not reduce the disparities between the haves and have nots, we are in deep trouble. And 32% of the wealth right now is aggregated in the top 1%. So when President Biden is aghast at the fact that the economy is growing and people aren't responding, I have a very simple answer for Mr. President, which is this. When the economy grows, most of that accrues to the wealthy, leaving others behind. So if we don't raise the foundation for everybody, believe me, I don't believe America can ever guarantee the same outcomes for everybody. I do believe that we should be striving to guarantee the same opportunities. So my economic proposition is very simple. Housing, we need to build 7 million homes in America. There are 500,000 people sleeping outside at night right now in the 21st century.
0: But is the reason that they're sleeping outside at night because there isn't affordable housing or because they're addicted to drugs and have mental health issues.
1: I'm going to get to mental and emotional health because these all these systems work together. But in the absence and in with siloing and the absence of systems to support people, it's piecemeal and it's not working. So housing, yeah, we've got two issues with housing. The cost, California, New York, you know, you, and most and every large city in the country, finding a place to rent, if you can even afford it, is a miracle. We do not have enough housing and the market will respond if we identify regulations that are preventing production, and we change zoning. A lot of the communities that are screaming to end the homeless crisis, they also scream when there's a proposal to build housing in their communities. We have to build seven million housing units. Healthcare, this is probably the most important. We spend over $12,000 per capita right now on healthcare in America. Our outcomes are mid-pack. A lot of countries that would shock you have better health outcomes than Americans. We allow pharmaceutical companies to charge us three, four, five, six times more for the same products they sell to Canada and Mexico and our friends in Europe and Asia. And it's repulsive. And we need to extend healthcare coverage to every single American. 26 million have none, 90 million underinsured, 66% of all bankruptcies in America right now are because of medical debt. When my daughter had Hodgkin's lymphoma and we spent time at Children's Hospital in Minneapolis, I have to tell you, Barry, it shocked us. Kid after kid after kid in her hallway had no visitors during the day because their parents couldn't be there or their guardian, they had to work. Many of them had no insurance. Many of the families had to take on tens of thousands of dollars in debt that they couldn't afford. Others had to declare bankruptcy. It so affected my daughter, Pia, that she started an organization with a friend called Pab's Packs. They put together backpacks filled with comfortable items and they distributed them to kids in children's hospitals because it really affected her. I've seen firsthand the tragedy. We have to be a nation that affords health care coverage to everybody, and that will reduce our costs as a country. That does not mean that government should ever be in the delivery of care. This is just the coverage. Education $1.7 trillion in student debt right now for people who simply are trying to fulfill their American dream, and they are burdened with having to pay 90 some billion dollars a year now in interest. I just don't think we should continue to be a country that doesn't at least raise the foundation for people. If we do so in healthcare, housing and education, do not burden people in their earliest years, we will be a much more successful country. Our economy will grow. And I have another proposition. I think it's time that we afford an account to every single baby born in America. Some call it Invest America, some call it baby bonds. Every American baby born should have a nest egg, everyone. It would cost us a whole lot than we're spending to take care of people way down the road. In the curricula in public schools, we should have a financial management course from earliest years all the way through high school. So every kid in America is watching their balance grow. They learn how to invest in the market. They learn about entrepreneurship. Then we can match Social Security with the nest egg that kids start actually uh, employing in the very earliest years of their lives. That's how we raise foundations. I think we should be testing UBI in certain cases because AI is going to disrupt this economy in massive ways and our economy will grow actually if we ensure that everybody has enough to spend, to pursue their dreams, to let the market take care of the rest. But if we don't experiment and pilot some of these things, Barry, uh, we are going off a cliff in a real, real hurry. Last thing is social security as it relates to economics. The trust fund is being drained. By 2033, we're gonna have to trim benefits by 25% if we don't do something. What can we do? We raise the contribution cap from $160,000 a year to 250, and then we do something kind of novel. This is one of my interesting propositions. Let's create a pool into which economically secure Americans can electively contribute their social security benefits into a pool that would be redistributed directly to the lowest 10% of social security recipients in America. Let's create opportunities for Americans to become philanthropists. We don't have to spend more. Let's just create and let's ideate, let's innovate. Let's bring great private sector thinkers into how to do this better. Let's reduce expenses. Let's eliminate programs that are not serving American interests. Let's reduce what we are wasting in many cases overseas and ensure that Americans have food and shelter and health, period.
0: The other thing that young Americans need, it seems to me, is is a great education, which they're not getting right now. I believe that one of the silver linings of COVID is that it finally, and I hope forever, broke the stranglehold of the teachers unions in American life and exposed the amount of corruption, waste. And I could add a lot of other words to that list. Are you for school choice? and? How do you explain why that isn't the normative democratic position at this point?
1: Yeah, well, again, Democrats have long favored tenure over talent and it's a real problem, it's a real mistake and I think it's doing our country a big disservice. So my, my, I have three, I, I call them the three Rs. Uh, I intend to relieve, to repair and to reimagine. So let's apply reimagine to the US education system. It is the system that distinguished the United States from every country in the world in the 19th century. Public education, it's a miraculous policy that Americans should be very proud of, but it has not kept up and we are not approaching 21st century kids in a 21st century way. I think it's time for the union, for teachers, for students, their families, for business leaders and great ideators to come together at a table and reimagine this education system that is a massive failure. It is failing teachers, it's failing families, it's failing our country. And I love teachers. In fact, we so woefully undercompensate teachers and anybody paying attention will know the biggest determinant of success for a child is the quality of their teacher. So why do we reward those who've been doing it a long time and not reward those of talent? Why do we undercompensate teachers compared to the rest of the world? Right now, 81% of our per capita GDP is the average compensation for a teacher. The best performing school systems in the world compensate their teachers at 120% of their per capita GDP. They raise the esteem of the profession. We should be encouraging and inviting young people to be public servants, teachers, firefighters, police officers, run for office, but we're making it a miserable pursuit. So back to the question of choice. I, I favor choice in every single capacity in the United States. We need more political choice. Women should have the choice to do with their bodies what they want, not subject to a government or to a man, for goodness sakes. I believe deeply in the freedom of choice, but we need to resource and reimagine public education before I would favor vouchers, because right now you can send your kid to a private parochial charter school if you wish. By the way, that's the healthcare system I wanna see. Everybody has public pro, um, coverage, but if you wanna amplify it with some type of a concierge program or something that you can afford, great, but everybody should have a good base of coverage with mental and emotional health care, by the way, which we don't have right now. So in in education, yes, I do believe in choice, but the public system has to be fully reimagined first in my estimation. Before then we allow the competition because if we do that now, we will literally drain our public system of the resources it needs to accommodate the kids who have no advocates because the only kids in private parochial and charter schools right now are almost by definition kids that have advocates. And the disparity between schools and quality of teacher in some of our most challenged communities in the country would shock people.
0: Let's talk about immigration. In 2023, and I was pretty shocked by this number, more than 2.4 million people in 2023 were apprehended at the southern border. And I'll lay my cards on the table. I'm extremely pro-immigration. In general, I have thought that those who were going on and on about the need for a wall and the need for border security were essentially in some way slightly xenophobic. Why did it matter? It's great. It lowers the cost of labor, et cetera, et cetera. I've generally been on that train. Now I have to say, and partly this is post-October 7th, but partly it's just trying to understand how this is fair. In other words, I have a dear friend probably one of the greatest defenders of the West alive today. He cannot become an American citizen, and yet 2.4 million people are coming into this country, and no one's doing anything about it. So the, the I understand increasingly why so many Americans are angry about this reality. What I can't figure out if, is why it's been allowed. Why is this happening, Dean? And do you think that this is going to become an absolute landmine for Democrats in the next election. It
1: already is. And it should be. And I'm appalled and disgusted and disappointed that the party I'm representing seems to ignore it. And it is the foremost responsibility of the American president to protect our borders and ensure our security. We're spending almost a trillion dollars a year defending our country from foreign enemies.
0: And anyone can come over the border. And
1: anybody can come across the border. So, but and,
0: why? Well, let why? me.
1: So, I've been there. To, let me start with my values, which is, as you reflected on yourself, most people listening, your foremothers or forefathers, if they came here by choice and were not enslaved, they probably came through a port of entry. They were processed. They wanted to become naturalized citizens. They went through the process, and they did so. And I believe deeply in that America, and we should continue that. The fact that the southern border is... A tragic chaos it is unforgivable it is inexcusable it is the failure of Democrats and Republicans for decades and here's the solution we need a secure southern border and we need a secure northern border I'm a border state in Minnesota people can walk across farms in Manitoba right into Minnesota it happens sometimes there are going to be mass migrations forthcoming Barry. millions of people fleeing war fleeing poverty fleeing famine and trying to find water over the coming years it's inevitable And we have done nothing to secure our borders at a time where we are going to need to do so rapidly. So I propose as a Democrat that we do two things. We fundamentally secure our borders, period. We redesign our ports of entry at the southern border in particular to create a better flow for people and for commerce. We use barriers where necessary, we use technology and we have a buffer zone, a significantly redesigned buffer zone on both the Mexican side of the border and the US side of the border. But here's the linchpin. Our asylum policy right now, Barry, is what forces these people, who by the way, most of them, 99 and a half percent if not more, are here for the same reasons our great-grandparents. I would think so, but we 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 just don't know. exactly. That's my point. So what, what we're forcing them to do, and the reason we have this crisis, is because our law incentivizes it. You have to cross the border to declare asylum. So what do we do? It's very simple. We change the law to require that asylum cases are filed in your country of origin. Think about that. If you come from El Salvador, for example, and you're fleeing, you're subject to uh, crime and, and game insecurity, violence. game violence, we should build a dorm proximate to our, our consulate or our embassies that can house asylum seekers to keep them safe. I think we can do that for a very little amount of money compared to what we're spending now. Have their cases adjudicated locally because, of course, people in the local market understand what the truth is better than a judge here four years down the road will know. Best of all, you won't spend your $10,000 if you're an asylum seeker and give it to a Mexican cartel that is further ruining the United States of America right now, you'll have your money. So if you actually are successful in your application, we bring you to the United States, you have $10,000 to begin your life in America. Right now, they come across the border, they're processed, they dump them into El Paso, Texas, they can't work, Uh, they have no money in their pocket, they gave it all to the Mexican cartels, and then they're told to show up for a court case four years from now. And we tolerate this. So why don't we be a humane country, Why don't we welcome and attract human capital, economic capital, and people who wish to pursue the American dream and do it in an orderly fashion? We can, but we don't have leadership that is willing to do the right thing because politics gets in the way. We have too many groups. But
0: I would say politics in this case would enjoin President Biden and the current White House to do something about this immediately.
1: Well, when I'm President Barry, that's exactly what I will do. I will combine the best of humanity with the best of security. And it is but, so but, woefully overdue. I've been there Dean, twice. I'm saying mm-hmm.
0: strategically, why isn't the Biden administration doing anything about this right now? They see it. the way that it is revealed. I mean, the optics of having migrants sent from the Southern states over to so-called sanctuary cities, sure. and then having someone like Eric Adams saying that the migrant crisis is going to destroy New York City. I can't think of a better gift to give to Republicans than that.
1: Uh, it's astounding. This is... I, but no ru- no explanation. Barry, I'm running for... This is why Americans have made the decision that they'd prefer Donald Trump over Joe Biden. I've been there twice, Barry, to the southern border. I've seen human beings in cages. It's appalling. I've seen how our policies are so broken, so misguided, and the lack of courage, the cowardice of elected members of Congress who are so focused on being reelected that they refuse to do the hard work is why I'm running for president because someone's got to get out of line and stand up and say this is ridiculous. It's appalling, it's gross, it's gotta change. The southern border is a perfect example. If we don't do so, we are in deep trouble. I'm a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. I see intelligence like a lot of my colleagues. There's no one that I work with that can say with authority that we have not let in people who mean to do us harm. Millions of people are coming across. It's just repulsive and it's the foremost failure, I think, of this administration and frankly past administrations.
0: Dean, because you're from Minneapolis, I want to ask about George Floyd. In the aftermath of George Floyd's death, there was a call across the progressive landscape to defund the police. At the time, how did you think of that message, and do you believe that that was a mistake?
1: I think it's one of the most atrocious, ridiculous, misguided, unprincipled slogans I've ever heard in any context. The notion of complementing law enforcement with social service providers, mental health providers, emotional health provision, to complement uh, law enforcement that is not often as well trained uh, is really smart. But to defund the police, when in my experience it's actually black friends and, and black constituents that are the ones telling me most regularly that we need more safety in our communities, that we, we are suffering more than anybody else, it's so misguided it's shocking and it was a massive disservice to the Democratic Party. I believe deeply in principle law enforcement. We should be focusing on attracting the best and brightest Americans, compensating them well, training them well, entrusting them with our safety and encouraging them. And there's not a police department in this country right now, Barry, that is fully staffed because of that slogan and how it ruined policing in America, not because policing in America does not need reformation in many cases, it absolutely does, but that slogan is so antithetical to what people want. And again, two things can be true at once. George Floyd's murder, police standards in many parts of this country have got to be addressed. The black community has been subject to horrific injustice for many, many decades. The other truth is we need public safety and the communities that need it more than ever right now in many cases are black communities. So I think that's a repulsive outcome of stupidity. I reject it. I have long supported law enforcement. And if anything, we should be working, redoubling our efforts to attract law enforcement cadets from the communities that are suffering the most. And we have to do better, but not resign and just argue with one another. It's getting repulsive. And this is another area that we need stronger leadership.
0: Let's talk about foreign policy. Mm -hmm. You are one of 22 Jewish Democrats. Is that correct? That's right. How has your understanding of your personal Jewish identity and also your role as a Jewish Democrat, specifically, changed since the events of October seventh?
1: Oh, very massively. I, I think at every stage of our life, we kind of think, oh, we know it all now. You know, we're we're pretty much complete. And I will tell you, in the last five years, in particular, what I've learned and discovered, both about myself, our country, the world, uh, has really broadened my perspective. It has brought me great joy in many cases and also great heartbreak. And as it relates to your question, uh, it's heartbreak because I have been forced to confront the realities of something that I really had hoped had been extinguished and that's anti-Semitism. And what I've been subject to, what my colleagues have been subject to, what Jewish communities have been subject to, what frankly Muslim communities have been subject to and continue to be is repulsive. But as a Jewish person, I never imagined in my own country I would feel sometimes unsafe, that I would have to think about my children's safety, that I'd be confronting what I thought were my family and friends. When I say family, I'm talking about my political family. I thought they would be there for us. And I've learned that in some strange way, progressive protection seems to end at the front step of Jewish people. Why is that? I don't know, and I'm confronting that barrier right now. And I will say, I don't think I've said this publicly I'm not sure, before I resigned from house leadership, I asked for a moment at one of our leadership meetings, uh, and I stood up and I expressed to my table that I may not look like someone whose community is suffering. I may not look like someone who needs support. I may not look like someone whose community is feeling fear, but we are. And I would ask that you at this table recognize that progressive affection seems to be stopping at our front door and to reckon with it and to highlight it. And at that moment, Hakeem Jeffries, to his credit, issued a beautiful, one of the most compelling, beautiful speeches about Israel and the Jewish people I'd ever heard by anybody. But that didn't change the fact that I'm afraid that we have a real crisis. And I think it needs to be first identified and called out. And I think we have a little time to correct it. But if not, I'm afraid the Democratic Party is going to lose uh, not just Jewish members of Congress, but I think the Jewish community.
0: You have, uh, in the past, boasted about your close friendship with Rashida Talib, someone who has defended shouting quotes like, from the river to the sea, we could argue, but many interpret it as a genocidal slogan. She has called Israel an apartheid government. How has your relationship with her changed since October 7th, and are there limits to friendship?
1: I think this is the question that every single one of us has to ask ourselves right now. Do we withdraw or do we confront and do we debate? And my nature has always been to run to the fire. And believe me, our relationship is complicated. Of course it is. I'm deeply horrified by some of the things she says, by some of her perspectives. But I also have invested time to get to know her and she me. And I'm sure she would say the same thing, that she's probably appalled by my feelings and affection for Israel. But I believe that friendship of ours is a very important one because if we cannot reconcile, if we cannot see in each other's heart that we are actually very similar, trying to ultimately protect human beings, then how in the heck can Israel and Palestine ultimately become peaceful neighbors? How can the rest of the world, if we don't ultimately find space and place to get to know each other and at least understand each other, When I talk about my friendship with her, it's complicated, Uh, and hers with me, very complicated. Do you think
0: it's possible to be friends with an anti-Semite as a Jew?
1: Ultimately, no, and this is maybe the fundamental question. Am I, as a defender of Israel, but also a believer in self-determination for Palestinians? If I love Israel, does that mean I am an Islamophobe? No. If someone doesn't like Israel and somehow favors Palestinians, does that make them an anti-Semite? I know that's part of the discussion right now. I think sometimes, yes. I think, think sometimes Do you think ignorance. that if
0: someone believes that Israel is the only state that doesn't have a right to exist, that that is an anti-Semitic position? Therein
1: lies my biggest challenge with Rashida. Uh, we, I'm, I, I don't want to get into private moments, but we had a very difficult episode on that very specific question, and uh, it was not resolved. It continues to be unresolved, and it's very difficult for me, that subject. You can imagine why. But- I am not the type of leader or representative that runs from the fire, because the only way to put out a fire is to be next to it and extinguish it. And that only can be done by human beings if we do so together. And I do not want to eliminate that possibility with her, with anybody. In fact, I've reached out to a number of Palestinian leaders in the country, uh, some of whom have responded, many of whom have not. But in the absence of responding, in the absence of at least engaging, We're doing everybody a disservice. And Barry, this is probably the most complicated moment of my entire life as it relates to who I am as a human being, uh, my obligations as an American representative, and my aspiration to become the president of the United States as a Jewish man who wishes to ultimately create a Palestinian state that lives side by side with Israel because I think that's the only way to keep Israel safe in the long term. And Rashida Tlaib and others, I do believe I need to maintain relations with because if I don't, I do not think it is even possible for us to conceive a safe Israel and a secure future for our kids here in America, and certainly uh, in the Middle East.
0: You mentioned earlier in this conversation that you met sort of recently with Bibi twice. I'd like to hear a little bit about that. And I'd like to go a bit deeper into your outlook, really, on how Israel should be prosecuting this war. Mm -hmm. You've both said that there needs to be a ceasefire and that Hamas needs to be eliminated, a position that I see as paradoxical at best. So explain that to me and explain to me how you see the way that Israel has been pursuing this war over the past few months.
1: Let me go backwards first. I've had a lot of these conversations recently. I've never walked in the shoes of a Palestinian, of a black person, of a Latino person, uh, of a gay person, of someone who hasn't lived my life by definition. And conversely, no one else has walked in my shoes. And if you are not a Jewish person whose family and ancestors were subject to the Holocaust, whose ancestors were subject to pogroms. That's what brought my family here. You cannot understand what this feels like. And I'm disappointed that I extend respect, empathy, appreciation for the life stories and challenges of people that I can't relate to what they went through. And I'm really concerned about the inability, unwillingness or ignorance of people unwilling to understand what being Jewish feels like, because it's really hard. And there are 200 Christian majority nations in the world. There are about 140 Muslim majority nations in the world. And there's only one Jewish majority nation in the entire world. And one can tell me that, you know, if the United States at the dawn of the Holocaust accepted Jewish refugees in mass, one could argue then that, you know, there is a country that would always accept the Jews, right? Well, no, that's not how it worked, as you well know the first boats that brought refugees here were turned back. So don't tell me if you're an American that we're a country that will always accept refugees. No, we don't. So Israel needs to exist. It has a right to exist. I understand every country in the entire world, almost without exception, was created with violence and displacement of people, including the United States of America. We displaced people and we did it with violence. That is the formation about every nation in the world, and it sucks, and it's awful, and it's part of the human condition, and it's part of human history. But I'm gonna return to Israel. Israel deserves to exist. Hamas is the enemy of Israel. It's the enemy of the Palestinians. We need new leadership from the West Bank to the West Wing. Mahmoud Abbas is paying to slay American dollars, yes are being used to buy bombs and missiles that are killing innocent people, it's true. And American dollars, I'm afraid in some cases, have been used to actually pay terrorists to kill Israelis. And I'm just really getting tired of having to choose a side when the side should be human beings. Israelis deserve to live in peace and prosperity and Palestinians do too. Benjamin Netanyahu, I believe, is a bad leader for Israel. I believe he's making my children unsafe in the United States. I believe his settlement policy is misguided and is- caused- How is
0: he making, let's just, that's a huge statement. How gonna, is he making the- I'll law- explain. Okay.
1: Because, and then furthermore, his government, his focus is the same disease, by the way, I think he is subject and has contracted the same disease that a lot of people in Congress have, which is the protection of his own privilege and power at the expense of the people that he is supposed to be keeping safe and representing. That is how politics works. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He, I'm afraid, is part of that club. And here's why he's making life dangerous. Because of his settlement policy, because of his right-wing government, because I believe that the judicial reform initiative, which by the way is worthy of debate, I think there's some elements of it that are absolutely reasonable and some of it perhaps not. But I'll tell you what it really did is it created a distraction at a time that others saw an opportunity to take advantage of, and that was Iran inspiring, I think, Hamas to execute that attack on October 7th. The response, if I was Bibi Netanyahu, I would have taken advantage of that once, perhaps in a lifetime moment, where the world actually came together to support Israel after October 7th. Not unlike what happened here on September 12th in 2001, when the world suddenly had empathy for the United States. Israel spent all of its equity that was accruing right after October 7th in a way that is going to be very hard to recapture, that has inspired anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism all around the world, and I'm afraid has activated a latent anti-Semitism in this country that is now prospering because of how he has prosecuted the war. I'm not saying he did not need to eliminate Hamas. I'm saying that the way the war has been prosecuted, it is hard as a human being to watch the loss of life bury of children and parents on both sides, mind you, but certainly tens of thousands in, in Gaza and to not be affected by that. Of and, cor-
0: yeah, I think anyone would be affected by it, but does it seem strange to you that the slogan coming out of huge parts of the American left and certainly the European left is ceasefire rather than release the hostages? Well, that's
1: my, I, I'm, I'm shocked that, Most Americans do not even realize or seemingly care right now that eight Americans are being held hostage by Hamas. I was negotiating the authorization for the use of military force with Ken Buck, my Republican colleague. And I started to call attention to the fact that we have ISIS and Al-Qaeda as targets of our military activity, uh, Congress authorizing. And why don't we have Hamas? They have eight Americans hostage right now. The president of the United States of America should be speaking about it every morning, every night, using every lever of American power, diplomatic and otherwise, to gain their release or extract them. And I think the reason that it's not that big of a deal right now is that they're probably Jewish or they're Israeli Americans, but they are Americans. And I'm appalled. And I think that is all people need to know right now about the difference. Because if this was eight non-Jewish or non-Israeli Americans. I think this would be a much bigger deal. We haven't had a crisis like this since the Iranian revolution in 1979 with the hostage crisis. So Hamas has to be eliminated. I think Israel's at its best when they relentlessly pursue individuals as they did after the Holocaust. They did not rest until the last one was done. They did it in Lebanon the other day. They're targeting um, individuals. I think there should be a multinational task force right now Nations of the world willing to work together to eliminate the very threats that aren't just threats to Israel, but are threats to Palestinians, to the entire region and to the United States. And
0: But and- if you're the government of Israel, Bibi or otherwise, and you're fighting an enemy that is completely entrenched inside mosques, hospitals, yep. as has now been proven, people's homes, their basements, tunnels underground... How can you possibly—I mean, that sounds like a wonderful idea. Of course. But how is that plausible?
1: This goes back to my contention in running for president right now, Barry, is that the leaders of the past have failed miserably. Benjamin Netanyahu has failed Israel. He guaranteed safety and security. The intelligence failure, the military failure on October 7th is graphic, and I think that'll be litigated in the future. But let's think about the months and years previous. Under his nose, they were doing all this, building the tunnels— building the missiles, getting ready for this. I'm shocked and dismayed by the inability of someone of that uh, focus on the protection of Israel to completely miss the boat, to not recognize what was really happening under his own eyes and ears. I think it's appalling. And I do believe that at the end of the day, the foundations for this tragedy are rooted in partially in his leadership in the past. And Hamas is despicable, the most despicable organization in the world. They don't want peace. I do think enough Palestinians do. And if they choose it and Israelis choose a new government that wants peace, I think that's all that should be necessary to actually impose this. But at the end of the day, this is a massive failure. It's a massive failure of every single person who has been doing this for decades.
0: I think anyone who's been paying attention to the Israeli-Arab conflict, the Jewish-Palestinian conflict, however you want to phrase it, forever, has gone back to the idea that you just repeated that most Palestinians want peace. The deeply tragic and unfortunate reality that has come out of every single poll, I'm not talking about the West Bank, but Gaza, is that Hamas is overwhelmingly supported by Gazans. What do you do with that reality?
1: Well, I think when people are living in miserable conditions, which is the truth, you know, Gazans live miserably. And when people are angry and they feel unheard and they feel uncared for, they're willing to forego their basic principles in favor of somebody who seems to represent them. Hamas was the first organization to actually help people with what they needed. Infrastructure, water, food, some schools, hospitals, while they're trying to destroy Israel. But it just goes to show what is the responsibility? Where was the United States? You know, Where has Israel been in recognizing the basic human condition? And Jews should know this better than anybody. We should be the most sensitive to this truth, that people, when they are living miserably and in fear with no hope whatsoever,
0: can't continue to. A lot of jihadis are some of the most educated people in society, if you look at the people on 9-11, I mean.
1: I'm not saying we we can't beat, we're not gonna be able to beat the terrorist groups. The only way to win here is to give human beings something to protect. And by the way, that's true in Gary, Indiana, as it is in Gaza. If people have something to protect, they live differently than if they don't. And hopelessness, whether it is in the Palestinian territories, whether it's in our own country, hopelessness breeds diseases of despair. It breeds terrorism. it breeds violence. It breeds mass gun massacres. It is the same disease all around the world, Barry. But,
0: but in a way, you're sort of, I know you'll hate mm-hmm. me for saying That's this, right. maybe inadvertently making the case for Bibi's policy toward Gaza and Hamas over the past decade, which was let's try and elevate people economically. Let's give the largest number of work permits to Gazans to come into Israel. The argument being that if you give people a better life, they'll abandon terror. They'll abandon their desire for genocide. That fell apart.
1: My contention, though, is that affording Hamas something is very different than affording Palestinians something. And that's yes. my contention. And, and that's all. And, and but I think we're actually kind of saying the same thing here. I, here's what I care about. I care about Israel's safety and security, period. I also care about Palestinian safety and security, period. And all I'm saying about Netanyahu, having met with him a couple times face to face, is I don't have faith in him. I don't think is. I think Israelis have lost faith in him.
0: I think he's polling at fifteen percent right yeah. now.
1: and I'll tell you the saddest truth is, and this goes back to political incentives. There is not an incentive for him to end this. There is an incentive for him to continue it based on his political predicament.
0: Two last questions yeah. on this. You have a seat in the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Ilhan Omar was removed from this committee mm-hmm. for her anti-Semitic tweets, and the resolution was introduced by Representative Max Miller, who said. Quote, Omar clearly cannot be an objective decision maker on the Foreign Affairs Committee, given her biases against Israel and against the Jewish people. Quick question. Do you agree with that and agree with the move? Her move. So part?
1: I I, um, I disagree with a lot of Representative Omar's positions. Uh, I'm her neighbor in Minnesota. I've been appalled, unlike Rashida Tlaib, who is Palestinian. And I have I afford her a different um, uh, platform, I suppose, because of it's, its very personal. It's not the same with others. I did actually speak against removing her from the Foreign Affairs Committee because I believe in speech. I believe that if we don't actually create space and place to have these debates, all that happens is they go offline and they become even more dangerous. I think it's important that she be public and share with the world what she thinks. But there's and then, a
0: difference between, obviously she has the right to say anything whenever, on Twitter, on TV, mm-hmm. whenever. That's different from having a really important leadership role in a really important committee in American government.
1: She was a a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, not, uh, was not, uh, when you say leadership role, I don't, that's not the case. Uh, You know, Congress has a mechanism to expel people. We just expelled George Santos. In my (laughs) estimation, if American citizens, I mean, if we're gonna have a objective conversation about dangerous people in Congress, we can have a very long one because there are a lot of them. People are incompetent, ignorant, unaware, focused on their own political futures rather than the principles of the United States, I can go on and on. But I don't believe that reducing debate is smart. I -hmm. think that we should actually, let's see what people think, you know Mm -hmm. what? And then let's have the like-minded and the willing and the reasonable use their speech to overwhelm the bad speech. Uh, I just don't, I think it's a slippery slope, Barry, uh, when we start canceling, decommissioning, Mm -hmm. eliminating, rather than just the opposite, What I'm surprised by is, where is the exhausted majority right now? I know most Americans are appalled by a lot of what's going on in Washington. Then why not go vote in primaries? Why not rise and actually have your voices heard? Why not participate? Why not overwhelm this idiocy sometimes that we're seeing with reason? Because it's getting awfully hard to to protect this on our own in Washington because there are fewer and fewer people like me, of pragmatism, common sense, decency, integrity, and competency, frankly, willing to protect this and we need help. And my call to action, my invitation to everybody listening right now is stand up. We have a right to protest. We have a right to be heard. We have a right to gather. We have a right to participate. And if you're not doing it right now, you're doing so at great peril for our country, for yourself and for your families. And that's really my call to action on a lot of what we're talking about now. If you're handing the keys over to people who do not have our best interests in mind, in America, it is still your fault because we can change it. Let's not let it get to a point where we no longer can.
0: There's sort of two wars that I think most Americans are fixated on, or at least the possibility. One is the specter of a civil war. Some people would regard that as hysterical. Others would regard it as sort of not And then a world war. We have Israel and Gaza, which we've been talking about. We have Ukraine and Russia. Next month will mark the two-year anniversary of that war. More than half a million people killed already. And then, of course, there's the possibility of China and Taiwan and China getting into the war. And then it's really everywhere, the flames. If you become president, what would you do to take us back from really what feels like the brink?
1: Human relationships. This sounds so trite, so analog, so old-fashioned. But if anybody objects to this absolute fundamental truth... If you do not have a human relationship with another person that is in a position or has an interest in hurting you, you stand no chance. I think we should be resetting our relationships with China. I think we have to defeat tyrants where we find them. I think Vladimir Putin is terribly dangerous. I think we should be planning for a post-Putin Russia that is forthcoming, a nuclear-armed nation that has had a brain drain and is very, very dangerous. But we have got to be at the table With other leaders. I'm afraid President Biden is no longer positioned well to do that at his stage of life. I think next generation leaders, both here and around the world, can can and must do this differently because we are one mistake away from mass human tragedy. And if we do not invest more in peace, uh, we are in big trouble. And I think we should be reimagining what international security looks like, how we hold our allies and our adversaries accountable and resetting relationships, particularly with China and others who have a shared interest.
0: What do you mean resetting our relationship with China? I
1: think it's time to reset the relationship. But what th- does that mean? That, that means sitting down, expressing ourselves, reciprocity. We should not be allowing TikTok in America if they don't allow Facebook and yeah. Instagram. But let's have the same standard. Let's just make it clear. We should not be allowing you to steal our IP with impunity. We got to work with other allies around the country. We should be collaborating on uh, regulations on AI, on crypto. We should be ensuring that the, the world is safe. We should be competitors, not adversaries. And we are literally creating an enemy that we are ostensibly then defending ourselves against. And I think a lot of that is from our military industrial complex that has to identify a boogeyman to get us to keep paying for these absurd expenditures.
0: Do you think China is a boogeyman or the greatest I threat? Think,
1: I think China is a threat to Taiwan, no question. Do I consider China to be a direct threat to the United States right now, like as imperialists? No, I do not. I think that is a very misguided. Uh, I think it serves the purpose of some people who are profiting from it, is the truth. But I do not think that we should proceed without trying to reset. And by the way, if they don't play ball, that's a whole different ball game. But mark my words, uh, the Chinese are not just able adversaries. We should be deeply concerned if we mismanage this relationship. And I think we have been deeply.
0: If Biden gets the 2024 nomination, will you support him?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think it's integral... And existential for Americans who recognize the danger of Donald Trump, who I assume will be the GOP nominee? The answer is yes. Uh, and conversely, Barry, I would ask that if I'm ahead in the polls over Trump come next summer, that he would get behind my candidacy. Conversely, if it's not Biden or Phillips and there's somebody else that emerges who is better positioned to defeat Donald Trump, we should get behind their candidacy.
0: Will you run again for president in 2028 if 2024 isn't your year?
1: I can't imagine. This was not about an aspiration. Uh, This was about participation. It was about meeting the moment. And it was about inspiring courage at a time where I really believe our country needs to see that it's possible, that it's integral, and that the system requires it. So I don't anticipate running again. I anticipate actually winning. I anticipate winning. It's gonna be a long, really hard journey. But if people care deeply about changing this nonsense and fixing this mess and actually being excited about being an American again and recognizing that common sense should rule the day, not Democrats or Republicans, I'm actually optimistic. I'm optimistic.
0: Dean Phillips, tell people where they can find out more about you.
1: Oh, I love this part. Go to Dean24.com. And I mean it. If you want to join the Dean team, be part of a movement, a, a community, a family, both Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Independents, but people who really care deeply about common sense. Please join us.
0: Dean Phillips, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Very. Thanks so much. Keep the faith.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation, if you think Dean Phillips is dead wrong or just foolish to get in the race, or if you went into this conversation having never heard of him and walked away thinking, this guy's pretty impressive, that's all great. The point is to use this episode to have an honest conversation of your own. Share it with your friends and family. And if you want to support Honestly, there's just one way to do it. You go to the Free Press's website, thefp.com, T-H-E-F-P, like the free press, dot com and become a subscriber today. It's only $8 a month and it allows us to do journalism like this. We'll see you next time.